it's a dream to be able to do this. And like I said, I'm going to work in politics for the rest of my life in one way or another. Like I'll, I can help folks raise money. I can help folks set up their website and create videos, content. There's a lot of ways that I can be useful. And right now I've found a way that I can be very, very useful and do something that I find interesting as well. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I catch up again with Susie Gold, formerly on the podcast as Susie Smith, practitioner of digital politics and co-founder of Vote From Home. Susie is back to discuss her new enterprise in the area of political tech called Homefield, which is working to help elect Democrats by providing a stack of tools so volunteers can text and call voters, chat with their organizers, and see help docs all in one place. Homefield is one of several examples of work going on at the intersection of progressive politics, phone technology, and entrepreneurship at this time. If you follow the political tech space, you'll want to listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Susie Gold and Homefield. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Susie. Nice to have you on the show again. What's changed since last time we spoke? So last time I was the co-founder of Vote From Home, which talked to Democrats in swing states who had never voted by mail before. We made 26 million texting calls from July 2020 until November and helped a lot of people vote by mail for the first time. And now I'm coming to you as the CEO of Homefield, which is an all-in-one peer-to-peer text call, volunteer chat, and volunteer help platform for Democratic campaigns and causes. Some changes on the personal side as well, weren't there? That's true, yeah. So Susie Gold now instead of Susie Smith, because I'm married. I had a baby. I have a nine-month-old. So uh, things are much more exciting. (laughs) (laughs) You have two babies. You got a new enterprise and a new child. That'll keep you busy. Yeah, certainly. So what did you learn from Vote From Home? If you did stuff on the sort of scale that you wanted to, What made you stop doing that and do another thing? And what did you take from that as you went forward? Well, leading up to Vote From Home, I had almost 10 years experience of working on campaigns, um, mostly as a digital director, but I 
often uh, got myself involved in field just because my goals you know, closely aligned with theirs. There were lots of stories to tell when it came to volunteers and voters. And I always loved volunteer empowerment and just how campaigns were giving people a pathway to take action, to make a difference in their community and their country. And with Vote From Home, we were volunteer run in terms of our direct voter contacts. So we empowered people to reach out to voters in swing states and walk them through the process of voting by mail. We also had an interesting donation model for every $25 donated. We sent 20 mail ballot applications to uh, voters in swing states. So it was kind of this direct action. And then they could take the next step to um, get involved and talk to voters. And through that process, I got really tired of our organizers, you know, ending a training and following up with the volunteers with an email that had a link to the text tool, a link to the call tool, a link to help docs, a link to a Slack a, a channel. And most of our volunteers weren't set up to use multiple channels in order to do one thing. So I wanted to collapse the stack, put it all in one place so that Volunteers go to homefieldorganizing.com. They log in at one place. They see their assignment. They can chat uh, with their organizer in the same window. They can see help docs that are easily edited by the organizer. And also they can get feedback on their progress in terms of you've, you know, made 5,000 calls, sign up for another shift so you can reach more voters. Building in the incentive to the tool to get uh, volunteers to uh, sign up for another shift to go back with the campaign to do more work. Because I think right now that heavy lifting is done by organizers and they shouldn't be tech support and they shouldn't be doing some basic uh, follow up and and uh, kind of report backs that technology can do for us. So that's what I, I'm trying to accomplish with Homefield. So is home field kind of what you wish you had had at Vote From Home? Yeah, so I sort of scratched my own itch. I didn't want to pay for an additional Slack channel. And so we um, we put everything in one place. We're using an open source chat tool that has pretty much all the same functionality as Slack, but it's open source. So it's very easy for us to customize. And it's also end-to-end encrypted, which is different from Slack and I think helpful on the security side for campaigns. But yes, I'm creating my dream tool, which is something that I have to kind of bring myself back to reality sometimes because I can't believe that I get the opportunity to do this. So who would be the consumer of this tool? I mean, are you going to get vote from home going again for the next elections? Are there other organizations that you think would be well-suited by this, who ultimately will be the users? So campaigns are customers, and our users are both organizers and volunteers. Obviously, volunteers don't make the push. They aren't the demand for setting up a text and call tool that comes from the campaign side of needing to talk to voters. We have clients, you know, statewide clients and also um, folks at the um, municipal level I think Homefield is honestly a really good tool for folks who don't have a big team and maybe have never run for office before. So newer candidates, because we provide a lot of support within the tool of setting up infrastructure in order to get your volunteer team going. I think a lot of things are added on ad hoc and people learn from their mistakes. And we want to give 
campaigns kind of this package of here's everything you need to text and call voters to manage your volunteers. So campaigns are our customers. But I want to delight both campaigns and volunteers because I know if we do that for volunteers, it'll be an accelerant for campaigns of getting them to come back for additional shifts, getting them to donate in a grassroots way. I always have mixed feelings when I talk to someone who's building a new campaign application. Just texting tools alone, there's a bunch of them out there, as I'm certain you're aware. And there's other people I'm aware of who are building new ones or repurposing ones from adjacent niches. And when you're a campaign, you may have a bunch of different technologies that are used to manage your data. And when you add another one in, then you have all of the challenges with synchronizing data with the other pieces that you're employing. Why is this something that makes sense to do as a separate enterprise outside of the other existing tools? Yeah, certainly. I think Homefield is needed because this combination of services doesn't exist currently. And in terms of making sure that your volunteers have the support without having to use a separate tool, which might sound kind of like it's not that big of a deal. But when your volunteer base is majority retired who don't necessarily interact with technology like we do in a workplace, organizers need they shouldn't be spending their time as tech support. And I've had some really interesting market research conversations with folks that say organizing now is just help desk, is just tech support. And organizers should be spending their time recruiting more volunteers so they can talk to more voters. We are campaign people through and through. And so I never wanted to create a tool that doesn't fit within the daily process of what it means to get votes or get money. Our van sync, you know, helps make sure all your data gets synced back into van. I'm not trying to get campaigns to do anything differently. I'm trying to help them do what they already do better and to save organizers time. So I am on the same page in terms of skepticism about new tools because I have been there being pitched about things that I supposedly need. I pass most of the time. And now I'm on the other side of the conversation of trying to tell campaigns why it's helpful to have all this in one space. And I'm getting great feedback and people are really happy to have it just all in one spot. So I think Syncing with what we have and it just our backgrounds as founders, we've worked on campaigns for over 30 years, cumulative in terms of our three senior staff members. So we are just trying to improve the way campaigns work. We're not trying to change them. So tell me a little bit about the founding story of this. How did you pull this together? Did you have to raise money? Did you... Uh, how did you find the par- the partners or the other people to work with? How did this all come together? Yeah, so it is very interesting. We're working on Vote From Home. And I, in my mind, said, gosh, I just wish this was all in one space and talked to a friend who actually worked on the Warren campaign on the tech team. So I was in Nevada, but he was at, in Boston at headquarters. And um, he 
spun up an MVP that was sort of like a Frankenstein of a few tools I framed in. And it had a different, terrible name, a different, terrible, hilarious interface, which I feel like going back to all founding stories, you have these historical looks that are so embarrassing. Did anyone use that uh, Frankenstein? We did have some organizations use that Frankenstein. Because, because actually that's the way, yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, that's yeah. that's the way they teach you to start something up in tech these days is, you know, it's important to get something out there and start getting feedback rather than maybe making it perfect. And then you can iteratively listen and make it better, right? Yeah. So our MVP was created with a text tool, a call tool, and a chat tool in six weeks. So from July until the kickoff of, um, of Labor Day. We launched like on Labor Day and we got a few clients for the 2020 cycle. Who who used it for for example? Like are we talking about small campaigns, big campaigns? Some multi-state organizations um, like Leadership Conference, a few PACs used it from home, used it for one state as a test. Um, but we were mostly with the AV table. Um, and so, but, but so much more valuable to have some feedback from that cycle than to not have any, right? Oh, yeah. And that's an interesting thing, too, about being a type A perfectionist and wanting your dream to be perfect when you release it to the world, when in actuality, I'm releasing this thing and I have to hold back the uh, excuses and sort of like, but this is going to be better, but we're going to have these advancements. And I get told by my co-founder very often, just... <laughs> shut your mouth and, you know, let people experiment and give you feedback. And I think something else that's been really fun is just the UX tools that exist now, like Figma, where you can create and animate something and then test it with folks. And I'm lucky to have a lot of friends and former colleagues who can test things before we build them. And that's very important because I think we've all used tools that they had the best of intentions in mind and it just didn't come out that way. And the thousands of dollars wasted in development and just the frustration from the developing team, um, that can be skipped um, by with experimentation and the use of an MVP. So once we got that out there, then we decided to one by one tackle improvements on each of the parts. So then we integrated, we replaced our chat tool with Element, which is very robust, very customizable, and very secure. We did a security overhaul. And one of our developers, that's his experience and, and strength. So that's a big part of, um, of the tool. And then we built a texting tool. And now we're on the dialer. So... So did you, are people being paid to do this or did you raise money? Sometimes I have a problem of asking too many questions in one question, but try and <laughs> answer some of the other pieces that I spun out there. Yeah. So in 2020, we were actually, we were in the black in terms of sales, which was great. So we made enough to pay our team of 2.5 salaries that we had on board. So two full-time people and one part-time person. And then we actually had some consultants as well. So uh, I would say it was 4.5 people that we had in 2020. And then um, I was able to get investment from a former colleague who's worked in politics for a long time, but like Clinton politics, the first Clinton. I worked with him at a PR firm after college. 
And now we're looking to raise another round, basically. I went from being a digital director on campaigns to running a pack, which involved, you know, more responsibilities, different responsibilities to then building a tool and now to fundraising. So it feels like I have um, leapfrogged my way into a, a completely different reality than I never imagined. But it's been interesting. You've made yourself into an entrepreneur, a political entrepreneur. And uh, uh, what have you learned so far about that road? What, what are the skills that you think serve you well? And what is yet to come, would you say? I think doing things before you think you're ready is really important. I give demos very often because we're a small team. And that's what I think is my weakest point because I am too in the weeds with the tool. I love it and hate it too much that um, it's hard for me to present it uh, sometimes, I think. And this is someone I didn't know, um, had no prior relationship with. And he said, I just want to let you know that was a great demo. And I really love what you're building here with Homefield. And I'm very impressed. And I just thought, wow, if I had my choice, I would not do any of this sales and demoing because I don't think I'm good at it. But I think that you learn along the way. And um, there are a lot of things that are still unfinished, but we're, you know, continuing on to get clients and to build our business despite that and to learn a lot along the way. I think if I were to release this as a completely finished tool, I would actually be missing a lot of feedback and lessons from the process. And I think also... The folks who will help you and provide you with feedback are the ones you'll never really expect. Um, when I started Vote From Home, I thought, I've worked in politics for so long. I have, you know, a number of connections. All of these people will be very important to the success of my my pack. And by the end of it, the people who, you know, donated and volunteered and who made up the bulk of the work were this entirely new group of people who I had met along the way. And that was kind of magical in a way, because I never could have expected that. I never could have known how we would make it happen. Um, but just taking the risk um, and and telling your story and people believed in us. I, I relate to this. Back in 1997, I started a political software company and used to give all my own own demos for the first, I don't know, five or six years. I was a programmer. I don't think I was um, a salesperson, but I almost always, when I met someone and gave a demo, sold the product almost every time. And I think that was because I cared about it and because the product was fitting a niche. It, it, it was providing something that was needed. And so when I would talk to like a member of Congress or their staff or something, I would always say they would, they would be left drooling. Uh, you yeah, know. where it's like this click happens and they're like, I don't need to see anything else. Like, this is great. I find it extremely hard to sell something that I don't believe in. And I remember like I had this experience of because I would constantly improve the software. If I saw someone running an old version, I'd be like, oh, no, like I can see all the the terrible things that have been fixed and that you've got to change it. And a lot of times they could hardly tell the difference. Right. But I, I just saw this stark difference. You know, you have that same feeling already, it sounds like. Yes, that is exactly right. Um, it is both exciting and filled with so much trepidation when I give demos, um, because 
we're thankfully making product updates like every 10 days. <laughs> and I'm really grateful for the feedback from my co-founder who said, just hold your tongue. Um, I think that's important too. You don't have to tell them everything that you think is wrong with it. That's what I would want to do. And it was, it's going to be so much better. Let me paint this picture for you. And they're just like left confused. Don't do that. Yeah. Who is the ideal client for you? Because even when you build a product, you could have a demo to someone who in your head, you know, oh, this, I know this is going to help them. Or you have to demo someone and you're like, not so sure, right? They're not quite the right organization for it. What is the client that you think is best served at this point? Yeah, for me, it's these uh, distributed organizing programs that have volunteers across the country in different time zones of different skill levels in terms of technology and also experience with direct voter contact. And um, it's organizing teams and organizations that can mobilize those folks to make massive change. So PACs, large campaigns like Beto Works that has you know, volunteer support across the country, because that's really the problem that I was facing in 2020 is that everyone wanted to get involved. And that was great. And I know that, you know, there's always attrition down the funnel. Not everyone who signs up is going to volunteer, but we could do a lot better in keeping that slippage from happening. Um, and just the amount of <laughs> questions to get ahead of and um, and technology problems that we could solve. Like one small anecdotal thing is at the top of your text or call assignment, there are instructions that come from the campaign. So you can put as an organizer anything there. So we're going to do vote by mail chase of this type of voter, whatnot. Basically what you'd have in your daily uh, email reminding them that they're volunteering. That alone has helped a lot in terms of because usually you'll launch a shift and then you can kind of time it. About 45 seconds later, you'll get six of the same questions. Who are we texting and why? What are we doing here? Who are these voters? And it's like, we can build some of that into the tool so that volunteers feel more supported and organizers don't have to answer the same question. (laughs) One of the ways that I think things differed from the way I built a little company in the space and and the way a lot of people are doing it now is I didn't raise any money. I tried to always use the money coming in from the sales of the product that's bootstrapping. And I felt like that disciplined me in a certain way to make sure that I was responding to the market well. But nowadays people who are raising money, they have the advantage of being able to go faster to hire people before they're would be able to afford them from their sales, but there are things you give up. How do you think about like this from the standpoint of like, you're building a product, but you're also building a business. People are going to ask you the questions like, is the market big enough for you? You know, how are you going to scale this? You have to find a balance in there and there's different ways to go about that. How do you think about the business side of, of showing people that this is valuable and investable? It is really challenging with political technology because you're oftentimes explaining to investors that, yes, campaigns recruit volunteers and they are the ways that they get their messages to voters through direct order contact of texts and calls and door knocking. Um, I had someone say, and this really got me and made me realize that there is a 
huge disconnect and lack of education with general population of how campaigns operate, which is fine. I'm not there to like inform the world. But he said, so you mean some dumb volunteer calling a voter is how a campaign like expects they're going to win? And I was like, they're not a dumb volunteer. And we do that in massive volume. And yes, that's how we get messages to voters. So it's one of the ways. It's one of the ways. Yeah. yeah. One of the interesting things that the funding opportunities have brought up is that, you know, we have a model to be profitable this year. And so it's a different um, investment opportunity because there are payouts along the way. And we have people who are shocked by that, that we plan to grow and have a path to profitability very soon, which I think says a lot about the outside business world and like generally venture capital. <laughs> but part of that is that it's a path to profitability on a fairly small scale, whereas a lot of times people who are investing want to, you know, run in the red because they're aiming it at being a fairly big company in order to get some kind of multiple back on their money. Hopefully people investing in progressive political tech are a little less worried about that kind of investment and more interested in like making an impact. But who do you go to? Who are you going to try to find this round of money from? I mean, it's definitely social impact investors and even people who maybe haven't actually done social impact investing. But I've found a kind of niche of people who are Democratic supporters and volunteers and have said, oh, my goodness, I had a, such a terrible time because of these disjointed tools. And so it's more of definitely a passion project and wanting to solve a problem that they've had. I think also with the outside venture capital world, you know, exit strategy is a big part of it. And I, I know I'm going to work in politics for the rest of my life. It may evolve and look different and it may be at home field for the rest of my life. I don't want to sell for a big payout so or, or, or any sort of payout. Like I want to keep doing this and keep iterating and, and adapting to what campaigns need. So that has been a, a tough sell as well because I don't have or want an exit strategy. I would say it's probably too soon to be saying you don't want an exit strategy because you don't know how you're going to feel in 10 years. And the market is very different. Like there are a bunch now of different progressive political tech companies and there will be others that have capital, that have scale, that might look down the road at something that you've built that's valuable and say, we could integrate this into a platform, you know, Civitech or PDI or NGP Van or one of these players out there. And you could, I mean, another road for you is like, you know, make those platforms better through adding what you have in and help, you know, architect what they have going forward. It sounds like you're a little resistant to that. I think that makes sense trying to be independent and trying to do your own thing. But like, how much do you think about the broader market as you build this in the beginning stages? I think that there's a lot of room for improvement in how our tools serve campaigns. And um, we, unfortunately, because the lack of market opportunity, there hasn't been a lot of innovation, I think. And sort of if you have a client base and you have revenue change has been slow to come. And so I just wonder when, if that change will 
um, start to get stoked and happen a little bit faster. That's what I am interested in. Well, one of the ways that change has come is by there being a very healthy external market of startups in the space. The companies funded by Higher Ground and New Media Ventures and ones that are unfunded and that are all over the place, some of which get absorbed into those companies and they bring that innovation. And that's a, a fairly new development and an interesting one. Yeah, I think that companies like Mobilize America that provided something campaigns really needed, which was a very easy event scheduling tool, um, and then also reach for relational organizing. But I think a lot of just given um, how campaigns operate, adoption has been so hard. Yeah, well, it's hard to be a campaign and have a stack of 27 tools. Even when I've talked to some of the most, you know, in the know CTOs for like a state party, they can't, they can't adopt too many tools. It's too much integration. It's too much training. It's just too many pieces. Right. And that's part of my concern about each new one that shows up. It's just becomes just a muddy niche, but, but, you know, I guess if some particular part is well-served, that's, that's an advance. That's part of what you're up to. Yeah. And I think as people who've worked on campaigns for a long time, um, we're just trying to help campaigns do what they do already better. Um, and I actually will say back to the bootstrapping and, and sort of making um, the most out of your time and sales is we have um, customer success team that are all former campaign staff. And we are able to pitch in in ways, it's not just a tool that you're buying and having access to in order to send texts and calls. We do volunteer trainings. We do volunteer support. We understand that especially smaller campaigns don't have the teams in order to do that. Um, scaling that is challenging, obviously, but at this point, it's something that we can provide our customers because we've been in their shoes and I know that how helpful it is. And I think that's a big differentiator with us compared to other other tools. You don't just sign up, you get the keys and then we bill you every month. We're there to, to help. If you uh, succeed and you have a bunch of campaigns that really love what you're doing and they're like, this becomes like a go-to tool, then what happens almost inevitably is the campaigns and other potential clients will come to you and say, could you also do this? And there's kind of a a pull to broaden your offering to the whole suite of every tool that a campaign might use because they like you, they like the service you provide, they like the ease of use and the technology. At this point, do you set any boundaries on what you want to be or are you open to like, why don't we solve an adjacent one and add that on? How do you think about like your long-term mission? Um, we actually talk a lot about business priorities um, and how they translate into development priorities. That's a constant uh, focus because you can get pulled in different directions, especially as you're growing and you're trying to um, fill the need for potential clients or current clients and you see an opportunity for money and you go chase it and then you've abandoned your, you know, 
OKRs for the quarter. <laughs> so what is it? What's an OKR? Oh, it's a um, objective key result. It's it's like a very businessy. You set these at the beginning of the quarter, and then yeah, <laughs> another thing I've learned. I'm constantly embarrassed by the things I don't know, but um, I think excited. it's better to ask the question and and uh, have other people then understand it. It's like KPIs, or you know, there's so many. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, DBC direct voter contact. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, we constantly think about that, and, and not to say that that's going to be solved um, by thinking about it, but um, there are a lot of optimizations that we want to create in home field as it currently exists. So I think, and I just have massively high standards for what we uh, push into production. So doing a bunch of things at 70% is not adequate for me. I would rather do these, you know, four things at 90%. I think it is challenging in those months between the end of campaigns and when you have that downtime and you are thinking about maybe diversifying your client base and so building new functionality into your tools based on, you know, some ballot measure that's taking place or something like that. Um, We want to make it easy for volunteers to talk to voters and make sure that organizers don't have to be tech support. And we have our work cut out for us in terms of, of the tool that we're building now. So I just think being focused on those priorities. Well, that makes a lot of sense at this stage for sure. Um, So how do you charge what, um, what does it cost to use it? How does the market seem to respond to the pricing? So it's five cents a text, five cents a call, um, which is middle range in terms of the market. And then it's a $200 setup fee, which goes toward your 10 DLC registration, which I don't know if you've talked about on the podcast before, but I, I have, I have, um, I know that the regulations around texting are changing. Um, and that some people are predicting that that's going to really change this peer-to-peer texting. What's your read on how that that regulatory changes are and kind of the, a push to make people opt in uh, rather than just buy a list of, of text numbers and spam them uh, in certain cases? What are the best practices and, and uh, what's coming that you're adapting to? So I actually think it's a good thing for campaigns and obviously consumers. Basically, if you want to send text messages um, that are not opted in, you need to register with the campaign registry, which is this new governing body created by the carriers, um, so T-Mobile, AT&T, Verizon. And basically, you can think of it kind of like the FEC, but for texting. You know, if you want to raise money uh, on a federal level, you've got to file your reports and you have to be in compliance. But it doesn't mean that campaigns don't raise money. Um, And I think a lot of people are uh, at the beginning of 10 DLC regulation discussion that happened at the end of 2020 thought, well, texting is over with. And we at that time didn't even have the guidance on how registration would work. So we've helped 
dozens of clients register. It's not that hard and scary. I feel very lucky to know the ins and outs of the process and the new regulation and can explain it to our clients and make sure that they're in compliance. What I'm excited about is more transparency into deliverability. I come from digital and you know email fundraising. And if I sent emails and I didn't have open or bounce rates, I would be operating in the dark. And that's what we do right now with peer-to-peer texting. We can show deliverability. So you can show what gets blocked. And I think that's going to be really helpful information to deliver to our clients to help them craft their message and make sure that they're responding to people. Because ultimately, campaigns are going to need to talk to voters on their phones and text them. And they're not going to be opted in. And there are ways to optimize your messages and make sure that your texts are getting delivered. And I want to show our clients what's getting delivered. And that's not what happens right now. So I'm excited for that and more analytics into deliverability. So 10 DLC is not registration is not the end of texting. It's just playing by these compliance rules and it's going to be good for voters and campaigns. Who do you see as your competition? Like if a campaign is trying to do similar stuff that you would facilitate, who else might they use and how do you see that world? Our competition is Get Through and Impactive, which used to be Outvote. We do provide, you know, volunteer chat and help docs and more kind of support within our tool. Right now, those tools are, you know, text and call tools, not volunteer management tools. So that's where our approach is different. Hustle also, although they don't have a call tool. So those are the folks who we're competing with in terms of functionality, pricing, things like that. And I think it's funny because I love this stuff and I get so excited about texts and calls, but I often will email people. I'm like, you want to talk about your favorite subject, texts and calls, because campaign managers don't care that much. You know, they want the cheapest tool and they don't want to hear about how it's broken. And so (laughs) being able to say like, yes, we can do that. And then also for your organizing team, we can make their lives easier. Finding who's going to be receptive to your pitch uh, is an interesting combination of the stakeholders on the team. What about other volunteer management tools? What's out there in terms of that? And how are they different from what you're providing? Yeah, I think, um, you know, Mobilize America started to become sort of a CRM where they had kind of like the signups. You would get all this influx of people's names and email addresses and be able to manage them based on events and things like that. I don't know if that's still in the works since they were acquired by Every Action, which is a CRM. We are adding in calendaring and event functionality. So, you know, you can go to homefieldorganizing.com, you can sign up for a text text bank, phone bank, and then get reminders and come back to that URL and do your work. Yeah, volunteer management is an interesting space because as I've heard from lots of VCs, these people aren't paying for anything. There's not a a demand. So I think the nonprofit world probably charts a more innovative course in terms of volunteer management than the campaign world. But at this point, um, 
every action and, you know, NGP Van, Vote Builder, they manage volunteers with my campaign. So, and that's still, you know, we are, have sync, um, but we don't, we're not a CRM. Right. Although when you have a database and then you start to get required people wanting to search in it and, and, you know, text a subset and you start to build a lot of the, the tools to manage a list, which is basically a CRM. Yeah. Yeah. And we have a developer who goes down uh, a rabbit hole often of how we can (laughs) craft lists and things like that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, What else should people out there who might be potential users know about what you're building and why it's something that they might look into? I think that volunteers are an incredible source of energy and also grassroots contributions. There's this like idea of, of these super volunteers who donate, they sign up for shifts, they recruit their friends. And right now what we do is campaigns spend a lot of money hiring organizers, recruiting volunteers. And then we sort of hit a wall with logging in and, and sending your texts and making your calls. And we don't give them feedback, progress reports that incentivize them to do more. And organizers waste a lot of time as tech support. So we are working to solve that. And I think that smaller campaigns that I'm talking to people who are running for the first time and they sort of have their friends who are doing a lot for them. Um, Home field is a great tool because it's super simple to set up. It's very clear what your steps are once you log in and how to be successful. And so for folks who aren't familiar with what it is to run for office, which I think we're getting more and more of those people, thanks to organizations like Run for Something and Emerge, Homefield is a great tool for getting people onboarded easily and learning the text and call world as uh, as a candidate. And then for larger campaigns, we want to make it easy for people from all across the country in their homes to volunteer and really leverage this huge volunteer resource that we saw do incredible things in 2020. And I think that we there's a huge market for a tool that delights both campaigns and volunteers. What's the sales strategy? Typically, when you're starting something like this, first you leverage the people that you know from your Uh, your time and your partner's time in the space. And then a lot of times you can do sort of direct sales to campaigns, or you can kind of try to sell through aggregators like state parties, digital consulting organizations, national party organizations, try to get like package deals out of them. What are your plans in that regard? Our sales strategy is definitely directly to campaigns. We are talking with several coordinators right now, but those are more so entities that do, you know, texting calls on behalf of um, a bunch of campaigns, not necessarily uh, reselling to those campaigns. We have a lot of folks that we know from working in campaigns. And so it's not just them that we're reaching out to, but it's also their networks. It's kind of this relational sales model of getting introductions to people. The bulls will run and you have to make sure that you are providing people with a service that they need at a price that makes sense and that you're reliable and have a good reputation at the end of the cycle. Because when GOTV comes, scalability is really big um, that we're focused on right now. So um, our sales is direct to campaigns. 
I get the sense that you're enjoying this. Am I wrong about that? Is this a good fit for you? Yes, I love this. Um, a lot. It's, it's a dream to create a tool for campaigns. Um, as someone who has worked on campaigns for so long and like the flexibility of something like Act Blue to set up pages to fundraise and get your supporters to set up pages to fundraise is something that I admire and I, you know, want to build something similar into home field in terms of just flexibility and ease of use. I have spent too many hours hearing from organizers and hearing firsthand from volunteers how challenging it is to use tools. In 2020, I did a lot of text and phone banks with some of these, you know, volunteer donor organizers that we had. And it would have been a lot more pleasurable if we had fewer technology issues. So it's a dream to be able to do this. And like I said, I'm going to work in politics for the rest of my life in one way or another. Like, oh, I can help folks raise money. I can help folks set up their website and create videos, content. There's a lot of ways that I can be useful. And right now I found a way that I can be very, very useful and do something that I find interesting as well. To what extent do you talk to other political tech entrepreneurs about what you're doing, get advice, share travails? How much of that have you done? Actually, yesterday, we met for the first time this group that was organized by Bryce Barnes from Give Blue of women in the political tech space. And there were four people on the call. So we're looking to expand. (laughs) I know Bryce. She's been on the podcast. That's interesting. Who are the others? Alex from Ballot Ready. This is a small space, right? And then Malia from, I think it's voice.io. I, I think I'm getting her uh, organization wrong, but it's an influencer uh, kind of network. So, Are you going to apply to the new media ventures and higher ground labs and some of those sort of accelerator investor types that are in the space? We might apply. We're still weighing the pros and cons. I've been lucky to reach out to people who um, are more unsuspecting in terms of their investment, which is good in a sense because I think that they are a little bit less jaded um, and a little bit more receptive. Well, they, I mean, they say you first find what friends, fools, and family. Maybe this is the <laughs> is this the fools? Um, <laughs> hopeful fools. <laughs> They're like, it shouldn't be so hard. I'm like, I agree. You can invest in my company. Um, So, yeah, those aren't um, exactly, you know, we're still weighing if they're the right fit for us. I think it is a little, it's frustrating to me. This is with everything in like the political spaces. We have so few avenues. We have so few sort of. um, A lot more than back in the day, I'll tell you that. But that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is actually interesting. Like, when you were starting, could you imagine what was going to unfold? Like, are you impressed or do you think we could do better? I'm both. Literally, when I was starting, I could point to everybody in the country who was in progressive political tech or bipartisan or nonpartisan political tech. There was very few. It took longer to build things. There, the, the budgets for spending on it were tiny. There wasn't even software as a service yet. Like really. So, um, and cause I go back to 
1987 in my first political tech uh, work when I was still in college. It's institutionalized so much. There's so much more capital available. There's companies that have come to scale. There's, there's a lot of ecosystems for building this. It's just totally, totally uh, matured comparatively. And yet the frustrations with the actual tools and stacks that you can build, the expectations are so much higher and the frustrations, they remain very large. There are so many things that are just too hard to do. You can look at anything out there and be like, ah, God, this could be so much better. So I, I, I do feel like we are even yet early in what can be developed. It's going to be very interesting to see what smart people, innovative people come up with and how the, the market sorts that out it's many mixes of capitalism and related ways of, of generating innovation that are all at work right now. And that's kind of why, like, talking to you from that perspective, that broader perspective is very interesting because both you're trying to solve this problem in this niche that to maybe someone well outside seems very tiny, but is part of a really important part of like our democracy that is in flux and changing. Yeah. Um, and I think that campaigns are going to need to talk to voters no matter what. And if I can <laughs> make a little bit of uh, profit every year and keep my company in business to make those tweaks and hopefully really in a grand scheme, like demonstrably bigger and make the the experience of helping out on campaigns of volunteering and of talking to voters significantly better that's the goal well i mean one thing that's interesting to me is it's so much easier to build a small app quickly yeah i did, did. i right. built a call time app exactly <laughs> and i mean now you have the cloud you don't have to we used to buy computers and, yeah to and, and co-locate co them and whatever there's so much software that you can kind of stitch together to build things now. It is. Yeah. But the same thing also seems to happen, which is after you've built something and you get embedded in a space, then continuing to make changes while you have a client base, things slow down. I think that whoever can figure out how to continue to have a fast product cycle, continue to keep their cl clients happy to make the product better. At the end of the day, if you're a product company, you have to have a good product. It will catch up to you at some point when you don't. I think it takes longer in politics for it to catch up with you. Um, I think there's bad products in every part of the economy. When there's a huge market, you can have more capital. You can maybe ha have the opportunity to build some better things. But I've been amazed at small business software and things that have not changed much in a long time. Like QuickBooks, I use, right? The desktop version, I, I'm very happy with it, but like their online version, which has been out forever, is not as good, you know? And that's a that's into it, right? That's, that's, a, that's a big, successful enterprise. Is there a question that I didn't ask you that I should have about what you're up to or where you're going? 
something I like to talk about is like, is it really worth creating a product that delights volunteers when we've seen that campaigns will recruit volunteers, they'll get them to do the work that, you know, they sort of like drag them kicking and screaming to do what you need and reach your, your goals. Um, and I just see so much opportunity for us to provide positive reinforcement to use like basic analytics of, okay, someone's, you know, 56 dials away from 500 dials. We can automate an email to them that says, you're almost to this level, sign up for another shift. Um, when right now it's organizers doing that work and it might fall through the cracks. And I think volunteers you know, especially in 2020, everyone doing it all from home. It was such a different environment, but they were instrumental in campaigns getting their messages out. And it, I think not only sending texts and calls for campaigns, but also having a demand from volunteers to just be working on a tool that is easy for them to use and delights them. But think about like from the perspective of like, a serious volunteer. I, I get the question all the time. I'm sure you do. I really care about this election. What should I do? Right now you could be a volunteer who connects to a campaign that is your client and does some stuff with your tool, or you could hook up with any of 500 plus organizations from swing left to the democratic party, to Planned Parenthood, to the Senate race in your state, they're all using different tools. They're all doing different types of things. They're not all doing text and call. They might be canvassing. They might. So like to be a fluent volunteer, you got so many options, so many things to learn. And a lot of volunteers are, they're not necessarily uh, that's that uh, advanced technologically, nor should they have to be. There's still work to be done in sort of globally helping volunteers help the party. Yes. And making it easy for them to get involved. Yeah. Would love to have the DNC as a home field client and make it easier and more delightful for their volunteers to take action. <laughs> you know, we have like the small gamification elements built in um, and want to improve that without making it like overwhelming. But I think at the end of a cycle, you should be able to tell someone this is how much you've done. Organizers and or field directors and campaign managers will do a you know report of how many dials and knocks, and that doesn't trickle down to the volunteer, and it's sort of just all dissipates at the end of the campaign, and then they start anew. So it'd be, um, yeah, this positive reinforcement aspect. I of mean, it would be kind of nice to have nationally a list of who volunteers and what they've done maintained centrally. There is some efforts along those roads, but anyway, it's interesting to see your part in this ecosystem. I'm, I wish you the best of luck. Anything else you want to say? No, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Um, our website is goodfightpolitical.com. Um, we're, that's our parent company's name, but our tool is called Homefield Organizing. So if you want to learn more, you can go to goodfightpolitical.com. Okay. That was Susie Gold. Susie's at 
www.goodfightpolitical.com slash homefield. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.